Well, I'm sure you all are familiar with the events surrounding the sinking of the Titanic. In 1912, the British liner was carrying over 2,200 passengers when it struck an iceberg. And more than 1,500 people died, making it one of the deadliest sinking of a single ship during that time. And when the Titanic went down, the captain's orders were women and children first. There were many stories of heroism, courage, and chivalry. The survival rates from the Titanic speak for themselves. 74% of women, 52% of children, and only 20% of men survived. I found it interesting that after these events, there was a memorial for the Titanic that was erected in Washington, D.C. Nellie Taft, who was then the wife of President William Howard Taft raised the funds for a 13-foot-tall figure of a partly-clad male with his arms outstretched. And on the front of this memorial is this inscription. To the brave men who perished in the Titanic, they gave their lives that women and children might be saved, erected by the women of America. This memorial seems so foreign to what is accepted and commended in our culture today. Men sacrificing their lives for women and children, women appreciating men sacrificing self for the sake of protecting others, and not only that, but a monument built by women to honor brave men. Our culture is so confused today on the functions of men and women. Not only that, but there is an onslaught of redefinition happening about some basic building blocks of humanity, of creation, of God's design. But the real question we must always ask about these things is, what has God said about these things? And that is always a good place to start. This morning, we'll continue in our journey through the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith, and we come to a section titled, Creation, Providence, and Man. This is somewhat of a two-part sermon. This morning, we're going to lay some foundational blocks down about the reality that God creates and rules all things. He has made humanity in His image, and He has made humanity male and female. However, we're going to spend most of our time on the third point as it relates to gender. And next week, we're going to build on these foundational blocks and consider how men and women ought to relate to one another in marriage, in singleness, and in the church. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're not in a particular text, but we're going to be flipping through the first three chapters of Genesis back and forth this morning. And my hope is that you will be able to see the beauty of God's design in creating us in His image and how we ought to reflect His image in a manner that is consistent with who He has created us to be, either male or female. So I have three points this morning. God's design for gender, sin's distortion of gender, and Christ's redemption of gender. So first, let's begin with God's design for gender. 
As I mentioned to the kids earlier, before we understand anything about gender, there are some foundational blocks that we must lay down first. And the first is this, God created. Our understanding of reality begins with this fundamental assertion that God created. The Bible begins by stating that the triune God freely created all things that exist. The first words in scripture say this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This means that all things derive their design and their purpose from God. Now, if everything that exists is here just by random chance, then there is no objective meaning. There is no purpose. There is no design. But if God created, then there must be design and purpose to everything that exists, including gender. The second foundational building block we must lay down is the reality that God created humanity in his image. Chapter 1, verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our, minute, in our image after our likeness. Now, if we are a result of evolutionary chance, then we can live however we want. But if God created humanity in his image, then he gives us our identity and he determines how we ought to live. Now, there's much that encompasses what it means for us to be in the image of God, but at a minimum, it means that humanity has an inherent dignity, value, and worth just because we were created by God. And before we can talk about gender, we must properly consider and weigh the reality that all persons, all persons, regardless of ethnicity, gender, age, whether they refer to themselves as transgender or same-sex attracted, non-binary, whatever, they have all been created in God's likeness. Every person that we come across, no matter how strongly we disagree with them, they have a unique nobility and dignity because they have a divine imprint on their lives. The third foundational block that builds upon the previous two is that God created humanity, male and female. Verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, created him male and female. He created them. So when God created humanity, he did not create us genderless. He certainly could have made us that way, but he created humanity male and female. Let, let's take a moment briefly at the outside and define gender. What, what do we mean by gender? Biblically speaking, gender is primarily a biological reality that refers to the physical differences between male and female bodies. And these differences can be seen down to the chromosomal, the anatomical, the reproductive, and physiological level. So there are biological differences that encompasses what we mean by gender. But gender also refers to the creational distinctions between male and female that manifest themselves in culture. So it shouldn't surprise us when men express themselves in masculine ways and women in feminine ways. 
Now, we should, we should be careful about rigid stereotypes, but generally speaking, we, re we realize men and women act in some ways that are different. And this is not just a result of some cultural norm that has been created over time, but it's a result of God making men and women biologically distinct. So to summarize everything I've said, the Bible paints, the pic paints a picture of gender that is a fixed reality that is rooted in our biological differences and reflected in our cultural expression. Let me say that again. Gender is a fixed reality that is rooted in our biological differences and reflected in our cultural expressions. Now, why did God create humanity male and female? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but let me, let me just give you two. I believe the differences in gender that God has created point and reveal the glory of God. So how does gender reveal the glory of God, you ask? Let me, give you, let me give you two ways. First, it shows God's creativity in the similar and distinct ways in which he creates and wires men and women. It shows his glory in the unique ways that men reflect the image of God and the unique ways in which women reflect the image of God. The second way that gender reveals the glory of God is that it points to God's redemptive purposes in Christ. We're going to talk more about this next week, but the union between a man and a woman in marriage, which assumes a sexual difference between the man and woman, is not simply a means for humanity to be fruitful and multiply, though that's true, but it is a shadow of the ultimate reality that it points to, the reality of Christ and the church. Now that we've considered God's good purposes in creating humanity, male and female, let's, let's consider what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman? What could go wrong here, right? <laughs> Let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to say to you that you have to, to be a man, you have to hunt, you have to love sports, and you have to drink beer. And to be a woman, you have to love shopping and love tea parties. <laughs> Keep in mind, while there are differences between men and women, there are also vast differences between men and men and women and women. But there are some patterns of design that Scripture tells us about men and women. So instead of me telling you what men ought to be like and what women ought to be like, let us stick to Scripture and specifically the first three chapters in Genesis and see what we can learn about God's design for men and women. First, let me point out the similarities that Scripture tells us. First, both men and women were created in the image of God. Chapter 1, verse 27. This means there is no superiority, no inferiority between men and women. Both Men and women were created in God's image to represent God here on this earth. That's exciting. That is great news. The second thing that's similar between men and women is that both men and women were given joint rule over creation. This is verse 28. Both men and women were given the same mission from God together. They were to represent God on this earth by being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion over all the earth. 
Verse 28 says this, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice that this mission is given to both of them. It's not like the man was given the task of ruling over creation and he just needed the woman to bear children. Both the man and the woman would use their complementary gifts to accomplish this mission of being fruitful and ruling over the earth together. What an amazing part of God's design. This joint mission removes any sense of superiority between men and women, since we're going to have to work together to accomplish this mission from God. Now, let me talk about a few differences that Scripture tells us between men and women. Within this commonality that we have of being created in the image of God and being given this joint mission from God, we also see differences between God's design for men and women. Let me highlight five that are present in these first few chapters in Genesis. First, man was created first from the dust of the ground, and woman was created from man. I'm not going to go read all the verses here, but it's verse 15 and 20. But while men and women were created in the image of God, there is an order that we see in God's design. Man was created first from the dust of the ground, verse 15. And woman was created from man, verse 20. Now, this order does not mean superiority, but this order does have significance, I'm not going to tell you all what that significance entails because we're going we're gonna to see how the significance plays out in marriage and in the church next week. The second difference we see is that men and women were created in different realms and were given different tasks. Under the same mission, they were still given different tasks and created in different realms. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So the man was created outside the garden, and he was placed in the garden. And he was given greater biological strength for the task of cultivating the garden and protecting the garden, to work it and keep it. The woman, on the other hand, was created within the garden and given the capacity to incubate new life in her. So the woman is given a special focus of the relational life that is going to exist within the garden. And within this garden, the woman was meant to flourish under the protection and care of the man. The third difference we see is that the man was given a priest-like task to maintain God's commands. This is verse 16 and 17 in chapter 2. While working the garden, the man was given the task of maintaining the moral boundaries that God had set. Obedience to these commands would mean life and flourishing under God's rule and reign, and disobedience would result in death. Verse 16 and 17 say this, And the Lord God commanded the man, specifically, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of this, of it, you shall surely die. And we see this priest-like role that's given to Adam 
when Eve is the first one who sins. Even though Eve is the first one who initially sins, God comes looking for Adam and confronts him about abdicating his role as the one responsible for maintaining the moral order in the garden. Paul picks up this theme in Romans 5 when he says that it is through one man that sin came into the world. The fourth difference we see is that the woman was given as a helper for man. This is in verse 18 and 22. After God created man, it says that there was no helper suitable for him. God created animals and brought them to Adam, but there still there, were no, there was no helper fit for him. It is then that God creates woman from Adam as a helper suitable for him. Something to note here is that, that, that the woman being a helper does not mean she is inferior. In fact, if you think about it, the one helping implies they have a particular strength to help the one who is weaker. So not only that, but God himself is described many times in Scripture as our helper. Hebrews 13.6 says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Furthermore, the Holy Spirit himself is called our helper. So Eve is created with the privilege of imaging God in a unique way of helping and strengthening Adam. How is she going to help and strengthen him? Yes, she's going to bring companionship and comfort to Adam. But more than that, she is going to help him by fulfilling their joint mission that's been given by God to be fruitful and to rule the earth. Notice that the man, even though he is the head, and the woman, even though she is the helper, there is an interdependence and a complementarity between the man and the woman that is built in by design. Fifth, the curse affects men and women in different ways. And this is all in Genesis chapter 3. Now, it's true that the curse affected men and women in similar ways, very similar ways. Both were banished from the garden, and they would both experience physical and spiritual death. But there's also unique ways in which Scripture tells us that the curse affects them. Genesis 3 tells us that the woman's desire to have children would be marred with an intense pain in childbearing, verse 16. And her desire to join her husband in ruling the earth would be frustrated as he sinfully rules over her instead of ruling over the earth, verse 17. And the man's desire to work the ground would no longer be easy. It would bring thorns and thistles and frustration until he himself returns to the ground when he dies. The point is that there are similar as well as unique aspects to the way the curse affects men and women. women. So let me summarize this whole first point on God's design for gender by just reading a small section from our statement of faith, which summarizes it so well. It says this, Men and women are both made in the image of God and are equal before him in dignity and worth. Gender designated by God through our biological sex is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition, but essential to our identity as male and female. 
Men and women reflect and represent God in distinct and complementary ways, and these differences are to be honored and celebrated in all dimensions of life. To deny or seek to remove these differences is to distort a fundamental way in which we glorify God as male and female. Now, now that we've laid down that good, strong foundation about the reality that God created all things, he rules all things, he has made mankind in his image, giving everyone intrinsic value and worth, and that he's also made mankind male and female in similar ways and some distinct ways to show forth his glory. Let's now consider how sin distorts God's good design for gender. Our second point is this, sin's distortion of gender. Now, because of the fall, no part of creation is untainted by sin, and no part of human beings are untainted by sin. Now, while fallen humanity retains the image of God, our minds, our bodies, our will, our affections all experience the effects of the fall. So let's now consider some manifestations of the fall as it relates to gender. One, our bodies are disordered because of the fall. We all get sick, we all get old, we get slower, we all eventually die. As it relates to gender specifically, there are some extremely rare conditions in which a person may have a chromosomal abnormality or maybe their reproductive parts are ambiguous. These are really heartbreaking conditions in which doctors may have to make difficult judgment calls. I'm not, gonna, I'm not a medical expert, so I'm not gonna say much on this other than this is an unfortunate reality of living in a fallen world. Second, our minds are also disordered because of the fall. Our ability to think rightly, our ability to understand ourselves, our, our ability to understand reality has all been impaired by the fall. And in terms of gender, there are some who experience gender dysphoria, where, where they experience a dissonance between the sex they were assigned at birth and what they feel their gender might be. Again, a heartbreaking reality of what it means to live in this fallen world. Third, our hearts are also disordered because of the fall. The book of Romans tells us that our hearts were darkened by the fall. As it relates to gender, instead of accepting God's good design for gender, humanity and their darkened hearts cause men and women to exchange their natural relations for unnatural relations. Instead of calling what is good, good, and evil, evil, humanity trapped in sin calls evil, good, and good, evil. And don't we see this abounding in the culture around us? Now, we must keep in mind that we are all affected by the fall in different ways. So there's, there, we are no better than anyone who is affected by the fall in different ways than us. However, sympathizing with someone's struggle against sin does not require us to give approval of those who defiantly disobey God's will and design. Let me just read a portion from our Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith as it relates to sin's distortion of gender. 
Although the fall distorts and damages God's design for gender and its expression, these remain part of the beauty of God's created order. To deny or seek to remove these differences is to distort a fundamental way in which we glorify God as male and female. Now finally, let's conclude with a third point, Christ's redemption of gender. Now, even though sin has ravaged God's good design and creation, God had a plan to reverse the curse on creation and restore men and women to their true humanity by conforming them to the image of Christ. Now, just as sin and death came into the world through one man, it is through one man that God reverses the curse. The first man, Adam, failed to represent God rightly by disobeying his commands. But the second Adam was not like the first. Jesus represented God perfectly, obeying God even to the point of death on the cross. And on that cross, this man, who was also fully God, faced the penalty for our willful disobedience to God's commands and God's design. But then on that third day, he rose again bodily, from the dead, letting us know that our bodies do matter and that everything that plagues our bodies, our minds, and our hearts will be completely renewed and restored. Now, those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ, we have been given a new foundational identity. This new identity of being in Christ, it does not erase our identity of being made in God's image or being made male or female, but it restores us back to our true humanity. This is what our statement of faith says. Redemption in Christ progressively restores fallen men and women to their true humanity as they are conformed to the image of Christ. Now, while we wait for that final day, our bodies, our minds, and our souls will continue to be affected by sin. But God has given us a helper, the Holy Spirit, who helps us put off the old ways of thinking and acting and put on new ways of thinking and acting and living in a manner that is pleasing to God. And don't we long for that day when our bodies, our minds, our hearts are fully conformed to God's design. Redeemed humanity men and women in the new heavens and new earth living under God's loving and gracious reign. And may we long for that day more and more every day. Now, let me just conclude with a few points of application, just what we talked about. First, how should you respond if you are struggling with gender confusion? Let me just say that if you're a Christian and you are struggling with gender confusion, it does not define who you are. It may define how you are, but you have been given a new identity in Christ that foundationally defines you. And you may feel like you're walking through this struggle alone, but you don't have to walk through this struggle alone. Talk to someone there are others even in this church who have walked through this struggle and experienced grace, mercy, renewal, and restoration. And we as pastors would love to walk alongside you in this as well. 
Number two, how should we respond as a church? You know, our hope as pastors is that we would be a church that would be open to all different kinds of people. That people with all different kinds of struggles can walk in through these doors and find a loving, patient, gracious men and women who are willing to listen and walk alongside them and point them towards the grace and mercy that is in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are no better than those who are outside the church. We are in need of the same Jesus that they are. Number three, how should parents respond to this? Now, if you are a teenage girl, if you, parents, if you have a teenage girl that says she feels like a boy, or if you have a son that says he feels like a girl, don't panic. That's the worst thing you can do. Gender dysphoria is a real condition that may need some professional help, but, but research has shown that there has been a sudden exponential rise in cases of gender confusion, and a lot of it is caused by social pressures and a desire for acceptance. In many cases, kids grow out of it in their adolescence but it's gonna require you patiently walking alongside them, listening to them, and graciously pointing them towards the truth. Parents, you must also be equipped to, to see the wicked lies that are being taught by our culture as it relates to gender. We cannot be ignorant about these things. You need to know what your kids are being taught in school if they're in school. You need to know their friends. You need to be aware of the influence of social media, which is exacerbating some of these things. Parents, you need to get ahead of these conversations with your kids because the culture is not waiting for you. This is why we, we are making this book on gender available to kids, or sorry kids, to parents for free. Uh, there's a stack of these on the way out for parents and it has age-appropriate conversations for young kids all the way up to teenagers on conversations that we should be having at home as it relates to gender. Uh, so I hope that this is a really good resource for parents who just are not sure how to have this conversation. But we want to be able to equip parents to have these conversations. Fourth and finally, how should we respond to our culture? Now, there are some horrible and wicked things happening in our culture that has accepted the lies about God's good design for gender. We see the indoctrination of young kids in our school, the incalculable harm that's being done to kids that are being reassigned their gender at a very young age. There is no other way to describe this other than it's pure wicked, evil. We as people, we do need to pray. We need to pray for God to move in our culture. We need to pray that the Lord would unveil the eyes of our teachers and lawmakers who are blind to the truth. We should be advocating for a Christian understanding of sex and gender and whatever spheres of influence the Lord has given us. And we should advocate for lawmakers who defend God's good design for gender. There's much more I could talk about. Let me just conclude with this story. 
Exactly a hundred years after the Titanic sank, the Costa Concordia was on the last leg of its cruise around the Mediterranean Sea, and it struck a rock formation on the seafloor, causing it to capsize. This was 10 years ago. I don't know if you guys remember this. One of the features of this disaster that proved that, that a lot of people talked about after it happened was angry survivors on how there was chaos on the ship because men refused to put women and children first. Instead, they pushed themselves forward to escape. Not only that, but the crew ignored the passengers and reportedly shouldered their way past mothers and pregnant women to get onto lifeboats. Now, there was outrage after this happened. And that tells me there is an instinct, even in the conscience of humanity, that there are differences in the functions between men and women. Although it does seem that consciousness is being seared more and more every day. Regardless of the direction of our culture, God has spoken. And God has been clear about his design for creation. So let us also be clear let us be compassionate, and let us be courageous about God's good design for gender. Next week, we're going to build on this foundation and consider how God intends for these expressions of manhood and womanhood to play out in marriage and in our relationships with one another in the church. Amen.